But if you're in a field like music, golf, acting, entertainment, and you're 21, do not have a backup plan. Like go full throttle, read the books, take the acting classes, go see 50 shows that you don't even like. Watch every Academy Award winning film from 1945 to 2020 and understand why did that win Best Picture? Understand why did that guy win Best Actor? Like be so nerdy about this stuff. Be so overprepared that if you ever meet with Sidney Pollack or any one of these guys that you just have this wealth of information and they're like, yeah, this guy's an actor, right? Like this guy's an actor. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. You heard that quote in the beginning. That was Joe Harwitz. I want to read you something from Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is pinned to the board above my desk. So I stare at it every day and Joe reminded me of it. What is success? To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That is to have succeeded. That was Ralph Waldo Emerson, and today's guest is Joe Horowitz. His career can be described as a combination of his passions, music, travel, golf, and linking souls. He lives in New York, but he's traveled around the world playing professional golf tournaments, all the while setting up shows at pubs and clubs along the way. His music has been described as Americana with a twinge of soul, country, and a heavy dose of good old-fashioned road music. He has composed original songs for film and TV. He has performed alongside the likes of John Oates, Joe Don Rooney of Rascal Flatts, Pat Monahan of Train, Darius Rucker, lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish, Toby Keith, I saw him play with Adrian Young, the drummer from No Doubt, and there are just too many more to list, but this guy has been around the block, and the way he has crafted a life that puts food on the table and feeds his artistry is going to be a game changer for any of you artists listening, actors, musicians, creators of some sort. What he did over the quarantine for COVID, creating this community by doing these virtual garage performances was astounding. By the way, if you're not a regular listener and you've missed me talking about the 10,000 No's Insiders community we have created with the same intention to give people a community of like-minded folks striving to get better. We've got actors, musicians, entrepreneurs, writers, professionals. The only prerequisite is that you're looking to be inspired and held accountable, and you're looking to get better at whatever it is that you do. If that sounds appealing to you, you can click the link in the show notes for Insiders Community, or you can go to 10,000knows.com slash insiders dash community, or email us at info at 10,000knows.com for more information. All right, now let's get to it. Here he is, Joe Horowitz. I think the first thing I'd like to start with is actually these garage sessions that you've been doing throughout quarantine. Um, 
I, I, it's been so, it's, it's given me goosebumps and I have definitely not tuned into all of them because a lot of times we're on, you know, different coasts and I will, uh, you know, I'll see the announcement too late or whatever it is, or we have something going on with our kids being, you know, out in the back or whatever. But when I've, when I've come on to your, the, those like Sunday night sessions on Instagram live, I see, you know, uh, my people that I know from the East coast, you know, Joey Whalen, James Whalen, Ollie Dunn, who's out here. You've kind of like brought all these, all these people together in, in a way that feels so organic. And so like everybody is cheering for you and you've become this little beacon of hope and light within everybody feeling disconnected. So I'd love to just hear, I almost feel like you stumbled upon it, but I don't really know. And then it kind of got more organized and it built into something even bigger. So just, just tell us about that a little. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on this too. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, first time, long time, as they say here in New York City at all the sports talks. Um, but yeah, so, you know, everybody was just thrust into this new existence of staying at home for work, for play, for fun. And, um, you know, I, I really started these sessions out of a selfish reason of needing something to focus on outside of your family, your work, uh, your normal existence, which, you know, by the way, we're all lucky. We have great families and we're healthy. Thank God. But these Sunday night things just came out of like a buddy of mine was watching something on Instagram and said, you know, you should do one of these things like, and get your buddies together. Uh, it'd be like being in a pub, uh, only, you know, you're the only one in the pub. And I said, well, you know, I've played to very small crowds before. So I would, actually feel fairly comfortable. It was just me in the, in the garage. Um, so I, I, honestly, there was no vision of this session other than me sitting in my garage, playing a few of my own songs to whoever would listen. Right. And, um, you know, quickly it morphed into, uh, Oh, now people are paying attention. And then whenever you have the attention of, you know, people outside of your normal like stratosphere, you're, you go, your mind goes in a bunch of different directions. You're like, you know, first you're like, Ooh, I should play my new songs. I should talk about my new records. I should, you're trying to capture, you know, the audience, right. Which is just a natural as an artist, as a performer, as somebody who, you know, travels as a troubadour, you just, your goal as a musician is for more people to hear your music, right? Your goal as an actor, I can't speak, but I, I would think is you just, you want to make a connection and you want, you want people to watch, right? Yeah. Without a without a stage, like you know, what do you have, right? So this this became like a stage for me, which obviously I'm very comfortable on. And um, you know, early on, again, like I said, it, there was no vision of like let's start raising some money, let's start doing some positive things for humanity. I wish I had that vision to start, right? But I'd be completely lying to you. It was a selfish reason to start. I wanted to play music, and then I started to get calls from friends of mine who run brands. And they're like, hey, we want to sponsor your Sunday night, you know, session. And I was like, well, okay. Um, but, you know, and that's when I will say, like, some of the great ideas, and it comes like that with songwriting, too, they, they come out of nowhere. Yeah. Right? They're, they're not like these planned moments of, like, I think a really good 
lyric is going to pop into my head. No, literally, I keep a pad next to my bed, and I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. And I don't know where it came from. Like, I have no idea where it came from. And that's sort of like this idea. He, he said he wanted to sponsor. And I'm like, well, I feel weird taking money, you know, in this crazy time. Because I felt like I was just this, you know, a guy in a corner of a bar just happened to be on Instagram playing some nice tunes for your friends. Um, but I, and I didn't feel right taking money for it. I don't know why. I just felt it was kind of strange. So I said to him, I was like, well, you know, why don't we turn this into something good? Um, because as a friend of mine, uh, he's actually a New Yorker. He started that, uh, a wine company called Notorious, Notorious Pink. So I said, you know, you've got a lot of relationship with restaurants. Those guys are hurting real bad. What if we took the money you gave me? We bought restaurant gift cards from some of your clients, which, you know, probably would help them help everybody. And then we'll give them out to these frontline workers that, you know, are, are putting their ass on the line every single day. And he was just like, that sounds great. He goes, honestly, whatever you want to do with the money is a great idea. I'm happy to get behind that cause. It's wonderful. So that he, from, from, and his name is Craig. So from Craig doing that, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it's like in, in writing, when you, when you have a good idea for a show, the show can write itself for five seasons. Right. And, and I feel like, and I didn't make that up. Somebody who was a very smart writer told me that one time. He's like, you know, if you have a good idea for a television show and one relationship, he's like, you can run 25 seasons on something like that. Um, so for me, that's the idea was like, oh, duh. Like, why wouldn't you take this money and do good things with it? And the two most struggling, well, there are plenty struggling points of what we're going through. But to me, it was like small businesses and frontline workers, right? Those were the two sort of major, um, major sort of, you know, I hate to use the term losers, but they were the ones that were getting kicked in the pants. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought that, you know, again, I didn't have this grand plan of like, you know, mother Teresa saving the world with this sort of thing, but it just made sense. And then, you know, I did that the one week with just notorious pink and then friends of mine were like, Hey, how do I get involved? I want to get involved. So I literally started getting like, you know, thousands of dollars worth of commitments from people. And I'm like, well, hold on, hold on. Like, I don't want to get into this whole Uncle Sam issue. And like, <laughs> you know, like Ven- you know, there's all these Venmo and PayPal and all these different things. And if there's a tax attorney out there, you know, probably need to talk to you at some point. But um, I'm acting as a pass through, right? Yeah. I didn't accept any of the money. So I also didn't know how long this thing was going to last. So I got a really bunch of early donations, like, like you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred dollars worth of stuff early. And I was smart. I just decided to pace myself, you know, so I would give, if I got $2,000 worth of donations in one week, I wouldn't give them all out that week. I thought it was smart to sort of just keep it going. Yeah. And then as I did that, more people started like getting involved, you know, Kendra, and I don't, I don't want to throw the brands out, you know, but they've been great. So I don't mind giving them a little love. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, no, you could, that's, Kendra Scott is a jeweler out of Texas. Um, she does a lot of really good things around all different kinds of causes. She reached out and said, I'm in, you know, let me, let me buy a, donate a wonderful piece of jewelry every week to one of the frontline workers. So all I had to do was introduce, you know, them to our frontline workers. And every week somebody gets something new. Um, Link Soul, 
which I know you know the Link Soul guys. I I know uh, I uh, I've actually bartered one of my ten thousand nose hats for a Link Soul yeah. hat at a party there you go. out here. Yeah, <laughs> so they're just a wonderful group of humans, man. Like just if there's a cause, and they made a T-shirt throughout this whole thing called it was um flatten the curve t-shirt and they sold like $300,000. I don't know if you saw the story. I did not No, worth of t-shirts and it all goes to the COVID-19 relief fund. Oh, that's um, awesome. So, you know, links all, I mean, ship sticks, another golf company, you know, with my golf background. Um, and then just individuals would be like, here's 500 bucks, give it out to some people. Right. So it started just to becoming this life of its own. Um, and you know, I, I saw it sort of peaking midway, right. And I'm like, okay, this is great. I don't want anybody to ever feel obligated to, to keep giving this entire thing. So I sort of had this like vision of like, okay, it looks like about 10 or 11 sort of, you know, episodes, if you will. Um, and it really was like, it was like a pub with all of my friends from around the planet gathering, you know, from Australia, from Ireland, yeah. from Oregon, Florida, Canada, and I, I said to one of my buddies the other day, I'm like, in no way, shape or form would all of you people be in the same spot, you know, conversing with each other over me playing music like ever, yeah. you know, like it just wouldn't happen. And, you know, to have that be involved as part of a, a greater good that we were trying to do. Um, well, that's where, what was, yeah. You, I mean, you, I had goosebumps sometimes watching you and seeing the, the comments fly in and then you would give a shout out to someone and you would, uh, you were very kind. You shouted me out at one point, but you were just, it, it, that's exactly what it felt like was a pub. And it was at the exact time when we really needed it, I felt. And it was, it was community. You know, it was just bringing community together and because of your golf background, which I want to, I want to get into, I guess your travel is probably more extensive than most through the golf world and, and what you do. And we can get into that. So you were pulling from all different parts of the planet, which is, which is so cool. And, and the other thing that I love, and, and you kind of just displayed it without even realizing it when you said, well, I don't want to throw out the names and start doing like a commercial here or something along those lines, but so-and-so in Texas did this. And there's a, there's a, an authenticity that you have that particularly for the listeners of my show, some of which are young actors, young filmmakers, you know, young artists who are coming up and trying to figure out, they're always asking like, well, how do I network? And I'm, always, my answer is always kind of the same. It's like, well, don't necessarily think of it like networking, just kind of like be a good person, you know, like, you you know, just, just have it be a natural extension of you. And I look at you and what you've put together and it's this really unique combo that you have between golf and music. And it, to me, it seems like a guy who just is following his own bliss and each side of your life is kind of helping the other side in some way. And I know I read something. I'm actually going to read it because I, I had this quote from you. I don't want to embarrass you by reading, but it was, I, th- I don't know <laughs> so if it good. was golf magazine. It was some golf magazine. And you said, there's an old saying by Confucius, or I don't know, maybe it was Bob Rotella. But anyway, it goes, the man who chases two rabbits catches none. Maybe I'd be more successful if I'd focused 
uh, only on golf or only on music, but I wouldn't change one shot or one note because all of it got me to where I am now. I love my wife. I love my kids. I still have a love for playing the game. I still love playing music. If I had focused exclusively on one path or the other, I'm sure I'd have a lot less fun and made uh, far fewer friends. Maybe that's really the best way to measure success. And beautiful quote. And you really are doing that. You kind of melded these two worlds. And what I'd love for you to kind of explain how your life kind of jigsaws together and the way you put music into the golf world and golf into the music world so people can hear it because I think it's inspiring for people to go, oh, there's not just one way to do things. You know, so sorry I've yeah. talked so much, but just kind of no. give us, yeah. I appreciate the kind words and, you know, even hearing that quote, like I get choked up even like hearing that quote because I really mean it. And like, you know, it's, it's so hard to, you know, take a pause halfway through your life, which is sort of, you know, just turned 40, which is sort of kind of where you feel like you are and, and take like this, I really did take a step back for this past article because I was, I was sort of forced to, right. I was asked, you know, a similar question that you just told me, like your golf, your music to explain it to me. And in, in looking back at it all, I really believe that. Like, I really believe that if I would have focused on golf, like maybe I would have had better success and made the U S opens and won all that kind of stuff, but that's not who I was. Right. And if I would have played just, just music and, and maybe I could have, you know, won a Grammy or, or, you know, sold out giant stadium or MSG or whatever it was, but I know myself and I wouldn't be happy just doing that. And, you know, to listen to that quote and sort of think about where I was 20 years ago and then as to where I am now, you know, another quote, you know, man makes plans and God laughs at you. Right. And that's what I would tell my 20 year old self is like, number one, <clears throat> and I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but um, I, I spoke to somebody the other day whose kid is t- trying to turn professional and wants to, you know, um, get as to a, PGA as a golfer, as okay. a golfer. Yeah. Okay. And it's, and, it, and it's like, Oh, I want to do this. And my, my son's graduated, you know, from North Carolina and he's top 10 in the country. Can you talk to him? And I say, yeah, of course I'd love to. So I said something to him that, um, you know, I wish I had somebody told me when I was 21, 22, I said to him, I was like, okay, from you're 21, you're turning professional. Here's very, something very important. Do not have a backup plan right? Have zero backup plan. At 21 years old, do not have a backup plan. Because I had a backup plan and it impeded a lot of, it's not the reason I didn't succeed to the Tiger Woods level or, you know, close to that. But in my head, I was like, you know what, if golf doesn't work out, I'll figure something out. You know, I got music, got all these things and I'll get back into the sort of how they mesh together. But it just was a poignant under, you know, sort of existence with this, this kid. And he's like, well, it's so funny. My dad told me like, you know, you know, have a backup plan. I was like, I'm telling you right now, the people who are on the PGA tour, who are winning, who are making a living, they do not have a backup plan, right? The guys like me who are doing other things and have created a nice life for ourselves. We had backup plans, right? We had things that we could fall back on, which is obviously the definition of a backup plan, but it, it takes that little edge out of your focus, your work ethic, all those things. And I look back to the guys who'd made it to the PGA Tour, who I knew, you know, friends of mine who are out there now. 
And I'm like, yeah, they worked a little bit harder than I did. And they never talked about like a Wall Street guy they knew who could give them a job if golf didn't work out. Or they never played music Tuesday and Wednesday nights of tournament week so they could pay for their caddy. You know, where I was drinking a Guinness to put me to sleep, they were drinking Gatorades and eating Cliff Bars, right? So, you know, the advice I gave that kid was put every morsel of your existence into this. Now, when you turn 30, right, and if you still haven't made it, start thinking about a backup plan, Yeah. right? So, yeah. so you know, it, it's amazing because I think back to, you know, how this all morphed in together. And number one, if I didn't have a backup plan, I would have focused on one thing, right? I just would have focused on my golf or my music. But I had this whole thing in my head, like, whatever happens, it's going to work out. And that was sort of my backup plan, right? Like, I wasn't worried about golf not working out. And I wasn't worried about music not working out because I was having so much fun doing it. And every morning, because I had these two passions, if I was like, I'm not going to hit golf balls today because like, I'm just, I'm just over it. I'm going to go write a song. And they, they fed off of each other and, and they allowed each other, I think, room to breathe, you know? Cause I, I think a lot of times when you get so immersed into something, I don't care if it's acting or, finance or whatever it is, you know, you need the outlet, right? Everybody knows you need an outlet. Some people it's, you know, writing. If you're a, if, if you're, you know, a wall street guy, I know guys who are writing books on the side, same as you do, right? Everybody has this sort of outlet for me. I was fortunate enough that my outlet was also like a profession that I could literally flip a switch and like, all right, I'm not playing golf this week. I'm going to set up five shows in Canada. And, you know, I was playing the Canadian tour at the time. And it refreshed my existence of, a, of being a golfer because I, I literally just shut the golf off, which again, I think was a detriment to me succeeding as a golfer yeah. because when, when Tiger Woods is trying to make, you know, the U S open or whatever it is, he doesn't just like, you know, go play badminton for six days and, and start, start back up again. Like that guy, if you read his books and stuff, I mean, he was working out at four thirty in the morning, two hours worth of chipping, three hours worth of full swing, 18 holes of golf, stretching, more workout, more hitting balls. Like I was not doing that. Yeah. Right. I was definitely not doing that. So, you know, I, I started, I turned professional and, you know, back to that whole thing. I turned professional when I was about 23 years old and, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, at that time there wasn't the existence that there is now in professional golf where if you're a good college player, which I was a pretty good college player, you know, I was, maybe I was third team all American and, you know, I won, I won some stuff in college. We made NCAA finals, you know, we, a good player. I wasn't like, you know, uh, if there was a draft in golf, I wouldn't be in the first round, right. I'd probably be a second or a third round pick. Um, That's and yeah. oh, no, it was good. Right. I was <laughs> yeah. good. You know, it was, it was good, but I wasn't that top tier that was getting, you know, these giant sponsorship deals from Callaway golf and Titleist golf. I sort of had to make my own, you know, existence. And my first sponsor was actually Senator D'Amato from New York, uh, Senator Pothole. Really? Uh, which that's, oh that yeah. Oh, I don't even know if we can go. I mean, how did that come about? Oh yeah, I totally go about it. Um, I met him through a friend and um, him along with the folks who own Lido Golf Club, uh, which is the, they call it Golf Club. It's a public course where I grew up playing, which you know about down I've, in the South I've played Shore. There. I'm a yeah. horrible golfer, but I have played there. Yeah, That's okay. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I had those guys helping me out and Senator D'Amato 
I was playing in an outing with him one time. And when I just, I just won the New York city amateur and played in the U S amateur. And you know, you're, you're like a local golf, um, whatever, not celebrity, but yeah, yeah, local hero. That's what it was. There, there weren't many professional golfers coming out of Long Island. So when in 2002, when you win all those tournaments, it's like, that's what people were talking about in the world of golf. So I played with center D'Amato and he's like, I'd, you know, I'd love to help you out. You're from my neck of the neck of the way, nape of the neck, you know, like let's figure something out. What brings you, know, you here? <laughs> what, right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what that even meant. I didn't have an agent, you know, I didn't have like a blueprint of like, this is how you get to the PGA tour. I was like, I'm going to turn pro and I move to the South. I'm going to go to Florida and chase the mini tours and try to get on a big tour. So I put a couple of bucks together with those guys. Um, and I went down to Florida and had uh, no success starting out. Um, because I was literally, you know, it's like moving to Hollywood from North Dakota without an agent or understanding of, you know, how the business works. Right. Right. Like I was literally like Googling auditions, which is probably not the best way to become an actor in Hollywood. Or I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe that is the best way these days, but, um, no, but I, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. You, you had no idea what was going no on. No idea. No idea what was going on. So it took a lot of bumps and lumps and bruises and, and, um, you know, a lot of failures the first two or three years, uh, playing different tours, um, you know, going to South America to play in the Colombian masters and going to Guatemala. And, um, there's a quick funny story about the Guatemalan open. Um, if you have a minute, uh, it was put on by the Hooters tour, which I don't know why I just did the Hooters tour, but put on by the, <laughs> it was put on by the Hooters tour. And uh, Guatemalan Open was a beautiful place. I mean, next door to El Salvador, uh, there's volcanoes in the background. Stunning, stunning place. And uh, tournament, you know, maybe I finished 35th, 40th in the tournament. You make your paycheck. And we go to Guatemalan Airport, which is about 40 minutes from Guatemala City, which is the capital. And we miss our plane. We miss our flight. And there's three of us because we're all going to different areas. And um, it's like 1130 at night. And we're about to leave. And there's a store owner inside the airport. He owns a bar. We're sitting there having a beer. And he's like, I'll tell you what, guys. He goes, the hotel that's like 45 minutes from here. He goes, by the time you get there, the next flight leaves at 4 o'clock. He goes, I shut this big metal gate at like 12 o'clock. He goes, I'll just lock you guys in here. I'll leave a tap on. And then I get, he's like, I get back here at, you know, 5 o'clock. I'll wake you guys up. You can just jump on your flight. And, you know, 25-year-old, like, dudes from New York. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, this is great. Let's do that. So he locks us in, <clears throat> you know, we of course have a couple of cocktails, a couple of beers. We had to rip the seat cushions off the side of the table, you know, the, the chairs there to use as pillows on the floor. So we, we fell asleep. Um, and then I wake up on the floor to cockroaches crawling all over my body. Oh. <laughs> that was, I still, to this day, like, Every once in a while, have a dream, and I'm just like, you know, whacking them off. Terrible visual. I'm sorry, but these are like that's the real mini tour life. You know, that's we're not like you know, PJ tour players. They stay in um, you know the Four Seasons. Uh, we do not stay in the Four Seasons when you're on those sort of lower rung tours. The, the, um, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of those things. Um, you know, you got to show 10,000 no's. And I'll say this sometimes for myself, you go, you know, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of overcoming, but in the grand scheme of things, 
of the entire world, it's you know, you're fortunate if you get to pursue acting as a career, you get to pursue golf as a career. But the flip side is, yeah, it's not I always say that about acting. I'm like, it's not entourage for no. most people. You know, it's just not anything like that. And I know for golf, it's the same thing. It's different tiers and different, you know, you're you're making money, so you're professional, but it's not like you're, you know, you're kind of scraping along and, and trying you, to get there. You're off Broadway. You're you're off Broadway, right? Yeah. That's, and I that's would explain what... to people when I was coming up in New York, I would bartend. And when I would go do a legitimate off-Broadway show, you know, equity show, the paycheck, I believe, was $236 a week. Now, I was making, you know, considerably more than that in a night of bartending, but you'd have to be smart about your money to save up so you could afford to be an actor. And that was the good yeah. job. You know, then there were plenty of free jobs, lots of them, you know. That's the same as yeah. golf. You know, we were we were paying it was it was two thousand bucks a week to travel, right? That's what it that's what it cost, right? If you're playing the Canadian tour between hotels, caddies, uh, you know, airplanes, um, I, I happen to have my truck because I would keep all my music gear on the back of it. Um, but the, um, it's 2000 bucks a week. And on the Canadian tour, there were 156 players, each tournament, uh, top 60 and ties make the cut, which means you get a paycheck if you finish 60th or below and 2000 bucks is like 40th place, right? Something like that. So unless you finish in the top 40, you're losing money. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's very similar to the off-Broadway shows where the Canadian tours and the, uh, corn ferry tours now, what they call them, um, you don't do that to make money. You do that to get better, to exist, to keep the dream alive and to, you know, use it as a stepping stone. Right. And, and to get your chops. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can't, you don't get the jobs you get in acting, at least most of them. Right. Unless you, you know how to act. Yeah. <laughs> like, as I always say, it's like, you're putting miles on the road. Sometimes you just, you have to get miles on the road. You have to get the experience. You have to, there are things that you learn just by, being out on the road doing it that you can't learn from your couch. And I would imagine it's the same thing as a golfer. It's the same thing, play, you know, gigging out as a musician that you're, there are certain things that you learn from playing in a pub and having people not listen to you when you're, you know, there are some jobs I'm sure where you go and you're getting paid and it's a blast and you're playing your own music and People are really into you, and I'm sure there are jobs where you're sitting in the corner and you're done with a, a song, and nobody pays it. I know because I used to bartend, and my cousin used yeah. to come in and play. You know, yeah. and there are sometimes yeah. when people are really into it, and you're you're the star, and other times where, you know, you feel like you're invisible. And but I I still think you learn in those moments. I think you learn the most in those moments yeah. for a couple reasons because you learn. First of all, you learn if you if this is really what you want to do, right? Like if you're if you're in the corner and you're not and you're hating it, then music is probably not for you, right? Because the the musicians who who play music for the musicians musicians who are musicians for life play music because they have to play music, like they have to get it out of their soul, right? And they have to get the this this music out of their body and their existence because it's it's screaming from the inside. If you're somebody who's just playing music to make money, those are the gigs where, you, you know, you're like, this is not for me. Um, and I, I think the same is for golf, right? Like 
I remember guys who are now on the PGA tour, you know, playing in the Edmonton open when I was there grinding on a Wednesday afternoon tournaments start Thursday, grinding on a Wednesday afternoon, working on, you know, their elbow position at impact, you know, or something like that where other guys are like, I just practiced for four hours. Like I'm toast. I'm going to go to the hotel and relax. Not that you can't succeed at that secondary part, but the guys who were grinding with nobody watching, you know, like there was no camera around. They weren't trying to build their image as a hard worker. Like they were trying to get better. Yeah. And, and as a musician, like every show is an opportunity to get better as a musician. And if people aren't listening to you, maybe it's because your songs aren't that interesting, right? Maybe not always, but maybe it's because your songs aren't that interesting. And maybe it's because the way you're singing is not that interesting, right? You have to critically look at yourself and be like, you can't say these people are stupid. They're, they're drinking their, you know, uh, boilermakers in the corner are not paying attention to me. Well, I mean, they're having fun, right? Number one. But if you were, you know, Chris Stapleton in the corner, they'd probably be listening to you. E- even if they didn't know it was Chris Stapleton, mm. right? If it was just some guy in the corner who sounded like Chris Stapleton, they're probably going to listen to him a little bit. Um, that being said, I've also been to corporate events where like Jimmy Buffett is playing and not many people are listening. So yeah. there's a crowd for everything, right? I mean, there's... There's a crowd. You can definitely blame certain things on the crowd. Like, like I said, you can have a Jimmy Buffett show and people won't be paying attention. That's just because that music will never work in that crowd. Right. But if you're, if you're grinding as a musician and this is what you want to do, like who cares what people are doing? Who cares what they're saying? If they're paying attention, if they're not paying attention, work on your craft, right? Try to get their attention in some way. And then once you get it, try to keep it, you know, try to keep it. And I've, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm working on a new project, um, name drop alert, uh, with a guy named Jakir King, who, uh, produced, um, three Kings of Leon albums, a bunch of Tom Waits records. Uh, I mean, the guy's got a bunch of Grammys. He's an incredible, incredible man. Um, and, and one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet, right? Like if you go to his house or if you meet him, you would not think that this is the man who's got this mantle of awesome behind him. Yeah. And, um, we're working on a project now, um, a new record and also a project for a friend of mine's TV project. And I started playing a lot of my songs for him and, you know, live songs and shows and this and that. And he's like, he doesn't know a lot about me. Right. We just met. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to say that you grew up playing in pubs and playing in venues where you thought, you had to yell at people. Right. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, how, how did, what is your, what is your take? And why would you think that he goes, cause you have a really powerful voice is like, it's great. He goes, but you're using too much power too much and too many times, yeah. right. Learn, learn to throttle it. And from a golf perspective, he put it in, he's like, just cause you drive the ball really far. doesn't mean you have to have driver on every hole, you know, and people who don't play golf may not get that analogy, but the point is like, throttle yourself back, you know, like, you know, if you as an act and I, uh, again, I'm not an actor, but I'm, I do watch a lot of your shows and I watch a lot of television and Broadway and, um, you know, the, the greatest actors I've seen, they do just have that tremendous range of emotion and they're not always, you know, screaming out the windowsill saying they're not going to take it anymore. Right. You know, they're, they're up and they're down and they have dynamics and, you know, 
every time I'm working with a producer like Jakir or somebody else, they blow your mind with something so obvious that you should have known. And it's because sometimes you get so caught up in your existence as a performer and, and you're around people who always tell you that you're great and you're doing good and your music is great. Um, but they don't know how to look at you critically. And even if they did, you probably wouldn't listen. Right. You know, like, well, that's what I was just thinking as you're saying, he's got miles on the road as a producer. He's, he's in sessions with greats. And so he knows the difference between, you know, he, he can just tell, he can differentiate, like you were talking about the golfers before you were really good in college, but there are other guys that were a little more elite. Now to someone like me down here, I'm just going, man, they're all, they're all breaking 90. They must be great. Yeah. You're looking yeah, at I, it with a different lens. You know? And I'll tell you, I have a great, a great story about that real quick. Um, but to finish the Jakir point, he, he, in this new project, he's almost given me the freedom to sing in this lower register that I've always enjoyed. That's sort of this breathy, like, I don't know how to explain it, but you know, more of the, um, more of like the Ray LaMontagne, Damien Rice sort of level of things with the dynamics, you know, available to you. But he just says, he's like, you know, your, your stories, your stories and your songs are what make your voice interesting. Don't feel like your voice has to be interesting on its own. And, you know, it was again, things that you're like, that totally makes sense. But because he's saying it now, it really makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, I so mean, I just, would equate it to me when you said that he said that you you grew up screaming or or you grew up feeling like you had to get their attention. I would say the translation for actors is this feeling of I'm not enough leads to overacting. You feel yeah, I'm not interesting enough to just stand yeah. here and let the camera rest on me while I'm listening. So I'm trying to do all these kinds of things that really don't make tricks. They don't really, they are really an attempt to shield us from really being seen. And I think that's what he's saying to you vocally, maybe is that you're, you're, yeah, you're not allowing you're, yeah, you're muscling it. Yeah. You're muscling it. You're muscling it. And that's what he said. He goes, but again, he makes great, interesting points. He said, you growing up and playing in pubs and bars, he goes, you've stretched that voice to a great place. You know, and it's it's made you it's made you want to write captivating songs because you don't like when people don't pay attention to you. He goes, and I'm going to teach you. He goes, and you have songs that you know scream with your words and not with your voice. And he goes, and I'm I'm all my job is just to help create more of those with you and just and the greatest producers in the world. And I'm assuming it's like this way in in theater and you know directors i think in in music a producer is closer to a director i think so yeah than than a producer um because he's he's in the foxhole with you yeah and his job as he said he goes my job is just to chisel away at all the, the habits that you created that you think you need and he goes i'm just going to you know unearth yeah the ori- the original he part wants of to your to free your, up the essence that's under there yeah, yeah your artistry and it gets I can't tell you how exciting that is as a musician um, to to know that the current tools that you have are enough in his eyes to make a compelling record, right? Yeah. Like that. That is just like wow. That's I'm excited. Like I'm and, so and excited. And I would go. I would take you one step further and say, 
when you get to the point where the tools that you have in your arsenal are enough in your mind to make a great record, that's when you've really crossed yeah. over. Cause I, cause it's, it's great to have someone like that. Who's a mentor who can, you know, it's kind of external validation from a guy who's been there on the top level. And, and so that helps you. And eventually what he'll probably do for you, I would imagine is not, then you start to believe yourself. And then when you do that, it's like a whole new thing will be yeah. unlocked for you. I think. I, it, no, I agree with you. And I, I did a call with him the other day. Um, we were going over a few things and he said a few things that, you know, punched me in the face in a great way. And I hung up the phone and I was like, there's like five songs I want to finish right now because I just feel like he gave me this little tool that I didn't have before. And yeah. I went and, and, you know, like, you know, certain songs, the way, the way that at least that I'm familiar with songwriting, like certain songs you could write for five years and, and plug a word in here or there. Other songs are written in a day. Right. And there's no rhyme or reason to that. Right. Like Jim Croce famously came home from tour one night and he had a fight with his wife, came downstairs, wrote three top 10 hits at his kitchen table that night. You know, the first one was, I have to say, I love you in a song, which you're a Philly. So you got some Philly connections back East. He was I, a Philly guy. No, Boston Philly, too. I mean, I've got some friends, but yeah, I got the New York, yeah. Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Croce was a Philly guy. But I love Croce. Yeah. And I did yeah. not know that story about that. Yeah. And, and I don't know the, you know, a little bit of poetic license and exact, yeah. the exact details of the story, but that's the essence of the story is that he came down and he's just like, all right, time to write. And boom, boom, boom. He wrote a few because the emotions were piling out. And he also was really good at songwriting. So, but the, you know, here's the, here's the other thing that I'd love people to hear is, you know, you're right. It just, it, it did just come out, but it's when you've been doing it as long as you've been doing it, or as long as I've been doing it, even if it hasn't come together for you fully the way you envision it yet, if you're doing it, you're setting the table for that for a song to just come out. And, and yes, the song is written at the, at the dinner table that night or whatever, but it really was been, it was being written for 20 years or 30 years oh, yeah. or whatever. And, and that's kind of takes me back to the beginning of this conversation when you were talking about the Sunday night garage shows and you said, you know, you, you were like, I didn't expect any of this to come. It just kind of came. But what I think you did is like, you set the table for opportunity to come. And I'm kind of always talking about that on this show. Like, you know, take action now, course correct later. You can't figure it out now, but if you follow that bliss, you you have the opportunity for things to pop up. I, yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to hear how you, like, how does it physically look for you logistically when you go you know, I've seen stuff on your Instagram account, not lately because we're all stuck inside, but I've <laughs> seen it in the past where you're, you know, at Pebble Beach or you're somewhere like that. It's a really cool backdrop. And you're, I, I don't, I never know, are you, and you'll be playing music a lot of times, but then I also, you're playing golf sometimes. I don't know if you're playing in tournaments yourself or if at this point you're working with brands that are surrounding golf and you're at the big, I'm not sure. So just explain to us how that works. I just, I'm very curious how you kind of navigate that. Sure. Yeah. So the initial, I would say sort of um, 
breaking off point of my old self where I was just music and golf was when I was about 31 and I was ranked, you know, 500 and some 10th in the world. You know, you're making 85 grand, 90 grand spending 90, 95. Yeah. And you know, it was, I was single, I had no kids. Um, It was a fine existence, but I just didn't see the 10 year horizon being where I wanted it to be. Um, And again, nobody knows what that looks like, but I had a pretty good feeling what it could have looked like if it went in a bad direction. And I didn't like that. Right. I didn't like that. And percentage wise, just being realistic as a golfer and a musician, it was probably heading that way, even though you could have be the most positive human on the planet. Right. As I mentioned before, like 21 to 30, no backup plan. Right. You start getting 30, 31. Yeah. You should probably start thinking of ways to pay your bills. And, you know, if you wanted to have a family and that sort of stuff, like you have to start thinking of those things. It's just the way it is. So I started reaching out to people that I had met over the course of my first eight, nine years as a pro and musician and explain to them, like, I've got a pretty crazy network of people that I've met, you know, CFOs, CEOs, uh, all these great guys around the game of golf that always gave me their business card and said, if I could ever help you, you know, with anything. And for so many years, I never asked for anything. You know, I was always like coming into town and we'd play golf and I'd bring my guitar to their backyard and they'd invite over 20 friends and we'd have a fire pit and play some music, drink some fancy wine and you go on your way. And, you know, picture eight years of that and pictures, picture the types of relationship that you can build with people when you're around really successful people and you're not asking them for anything like they're your favorite person. Right. And you're their favorite person. Yeah. Because they're just surrounded by people who just take and grab and grab. Yeah. And for years, like I didn't really need anything from them. I just was, I happened to be passing through their town. Only thing I wanted from them is them to come see my show at, you know, Dugan's pub in Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the only thing I ever asked them. Um, And uh, you know, when I was 31, 32, I was like, let me call these guys, see if they really meant, you know, that they wanted to help me out. So I started calling some of these brands and basically it was like, what do you do? Okay. Let me try to help you grow your business through my travels, through golf and music. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could introduce what's your target demographic. Oh yeah. Rich guys who are successful and have a bunch of cash. Yeah. I can be around those people for you. And I would make introductions and then I would get paid based on if there was business out of them. And I was still able to play my golf and my music. Right. And then I started to get invited into these like, you know, celebrity golf pro-am. There's like a whole circuit out there of like all the ex athletes um, and a lot of actors yeah. who love the game of golf and who were basically like, uh, you know, a good example, um, Michael Pena, who was just in, um, great actor, great actor, great guy, Kiki Camarena in Narcos, right. Awesome guy, fully addicted to golf, really? right? Like, Oh, fully addicted to golf. If you check out his Instagram or other stuff, I mean, he's, he's like talking about the angle of his wedge He's tweeting about different golf coaches, you know, um, super, super guy, really sort of like genuine kind of guy. Every time you see me hugs you, you know, even yeah. though you don't know him very well, he's just like so sweet and nice. So at all these events, you start meeting all these crazy people. Um, and then, you know, you're asked to play music with the Toby Keiths of the world 
and, you know, the Jake Owens and the Darius Ruckers. And I was the golfer who played music. So I got a seat at the table with all these things. So then I started meeting all these brands who sponsor those events, you know, um, Microsoft, ServePro. And I started getting involved with managing their PGA Tour partnerships. So they would come to me with, you know, me and a group of people with a budget and say, we have X amount of dollars we want to spend in and around the PGA Tour, the game of golf. Tell me where you think we should spend it. And because I'd been to all these events and seen the hospitality aspect of it and seen what brands were doing from an activation standpoint, I felt really comfortable stating which events were cool, what you could do there, and then helping them activate there all while playing golf at some of these events and also playing music at some of these events. So it was just this natural progression of like, you don't even have to pay for my travel. Like I'm already going to be there. So let me just help you grow your brand at these things. And I was always very careful, you know, cause as a musician, um, I mean, two things I've, I've always looked at myself as a musician rather than a golfer, um, for a couple of reasons. I, I, and this is one of them is very vain, but I think being a musician is cooler than being a golfer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm being honest. Like, and and that just means like when I wake up when I was 29, 30 years old, I always said it was cool that I was a musician and golfer was fun. And it was, it was interesting, but I don't know. I was felt like being a musician. It it gave me better energy as a human. I I don't know how else to explain it. Like it's in my soul, whatever you want to call it. Um, but also as a musician, as a golfer, it's very hard to be taken seriously as a musician, right? Very hard. As a musician, if you play good golf, it's just merit. And they're like, oh, how cool is that? The guy's a musician, but he's also a pretty good golfer. So yeah. like if, and I always say it this way, and I've said it a thousand times, like if, if Tiger Woods made a country album, I don't think he'd be that good, right? And I think he'd have a hard time, you know, getting the traction, yeah. But, but if like Chris Stapleton qualified for the U S open, that's a damn cool story, you right. know? Right. And, and people would be like, that is awesome. We are totally going to root for that guy. So to me, I've always, you know, I've always identified as, as a musician, um, definitely later in life, you know, late twenties into now, um, because it's more of, you know, it's something that it's something that I could do every day without, leaving my family. It's something I could do at from eight to eight thirty at night. And it's something that I can create always. Um, and it's also something that, um, again, there's the older I get, the more, the more fuel I have for being a musician. Um, and, and honestly too, golf has physically passed me by a little bit with the new crowd and the new crop of humans who are playing golf. They're six, four, 220 hitting the ball 350 yards. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to Rudy five foot, nothing, you know, 100 and nothing. Uh, so I was always sort of the grinder, um, of the, of the golf world. So, so, you know, circling back to your initial question and point was I morphed those two things, golf and music and the, the brand aspect of it just came with it because I really was, I felt like I was an expert, um, by, by chance, you know, like I was, I was just like, if somebody asked you to be an acting consultant, like how do you get somebody, you know, a job in Hollywood, you could probably talk for 40 hours yeah. on how to get a job. doesn't mean you can get them a job, right? Because 
I just read the Michael Ovitz book. It's really impossible to get a job as an actor. Yeah. Um, but, but the point is you put the, the miles on the road, right. With what you were doing. And so did I, you know, like I, I saw it from a golf perspective. I saw it from a hospitality perspective because I was there playing music, entertaining. I was there playing golf. So there was definitely, that was a, my son screaming. I, I heard it. And I, heard my, I heard my daughter out there. So yeah. we'll, uh, we'll yeah. wind toward the end. <laughs> it, it's what it is. But, um, but you know, it, it just was a natural progression of, I still felt like I could create all the things I was creating um, and do the stuff that helps pay for it all. Right. Yeah. Like the, the brand stuff. I mean, you know, you know how hard it is as an actor to make a living. It's that hard as a musician and a golfer. So, you know, there was an old quote, you do the things you have to do so you can do the things you want to do. And for me, like, I'm so fortunate that the things that I have to do are with amazing people and have, they've given me the freedom um, to still be creative and still play my golf and still play my music. And as long as I take care of my responsibilities, I'm free to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it reminds me of my own uh, approach to my career, which is kind of, I call it the Rocky Balboa slash Andy Dufresne uh, approach, you know, yeah. from Shawshank Redemption, which is just stay in the game and don't let your, don't let your flame go out. Like keep, if you can maintain the love yeah. for it and stay in the game, you've got a shot and that's what you've done. Um, I've got, Three questions, and I think you listen, so you're probably like, you know, already know what they are coming at you. You kind of answered one of them way, way earlier. Um, <laughs> but the first one is just, you know, well, really, even before we get to that, or we could kind of combo this, I usually ask, you know, the word no means what to you. But for you, I'd actually want to ask, like, what was the biggest no and how did you overcome it? Because it, I, I don't know if there was a harrowing no, or if you just kind of had these incremental changes as you went along. Maybe there's something personally that happened. I don't know, but what I, I'm just interested to hear, like what was for you the biggest roadblock when you thought this, the, these two dreams are potentially done if you ever thought that and how did you kind of combat it? You know, <clears throat> I never paid attention to the word. No, like I, I always looked at it as like, it was their loss or you obviously don't see what I see. And I, I use it like you've done a thousand times, you know, as, obviously as motivation and as a chip on, you know, a chip on your shoulder um, there were definite there. I, st I mean, I still get no's every day, right? Like no's are a part of both business, all three of the businesses that I'm involved in. They're, they're a part of it. And to me, like, you know, you read the Springsteen book, born to run. I started um, reading it. I still yeah. have it on my shelf. I haven't the, finished the amount of people who've said no to, to Bruce, to, who said no to Bruce when he was coming up. It's like, who are you to tell me that my music isn't good? Or who are you to tell me that I'm not going to make it as a golfer? Um, the one thing that stands out, actually, when I was 23, when I first moved to Florida to turn pro, I played golf with this grizzly old pro named Bruce Fleischer, who won on the PGA Tour. Um, had, you know, anybody who played the game of golf would take his career. 
wasn't a Hall of Fame career, but made an existence, won on the PGA Tour. You made it, right? Great. And we were sitting on the range. Uh, I, I remember, I remember like, like this was yesterday. We're sitting on the range and there was a, a rich guy from New York who came down and he's sitting on the range and I'm hitting balls. And the guy's like, ah, oh, Bruce, you think this kid's got it? Is he going to make it? And Bruce is like, let me tell you something. Nobody in the world has the ability to say if this kid's going to make it or this kid's not going to make it. Nobody knows. So if this kid works hard, that'll give him his best chance. And it's always, I've always remembered that where it's like, I don't care if it's your mom, if it's your dad, if it's your sponsor, if it's your wife, nobody has the ability to say that song is going to be a hit. Right. And nobody has the ability to say you're going to win the U S open this year, but you can use it as encouragement. Right. And the people who say no to you, I don't even give a shit. I honestly don't give a shit anymore. It, it gets annoying when you know how good this could be for them. Right. Like you see, like you're missing this and you could try to sell yourself. Right. I mean, that's part of it. Right. You're, you're a sale as an actor, you're a salesman, right. As a, everything I do is a sales kind of, kind of thing. And there's only so much you could do to people. Right. But there were people who turned down investments, you know, turned down a seed money into um, the greatest companies on the planet. You know, like Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett, Warren Buffett, you know, said Google wasn't going to work. Yeah. Well, that kind of worked, right? Yeah. yeah. So you just have to look at these no and be like, that guy doesn't, it's not the end all be all. There's no way that that one no is going to do anything but, okay, check that guy off next on the list. So, I mean, I'm sure you heard an answer like that in the past, but it's honestly like, those are the real sort of like the one, the one memory I do remember is that Bruce Fleischer story. Yeah. What about uh, mantra? Do you have a mantra that you kind of fall back on? Like maybe there's one specific one when things seem like they're falling apart or whether you're, you know, in the middle of a tournament and your golf game falls apart or you're in the middle of some kind of business deal and it falls apart. Anything that kind of you come back to? There was a few things when I was a golfer. um, I would get, you know, like I said before, there's a cut, right? So every tournament after 36 holes, there's a cut. And if you make the cut, you get a paycheck. If you don't, you don't get a, you know, you don't get a paycheck. And there was a stretch where I missed like five cuts in a row by one shot, you know, and it was, it was all my fault by the way. Right. Like this wasn't like, Oh, a bird landed on my head when I was swinging and the damn ball missed the hole. No, if you look back, if you can critically look back at, and, and now it's easy to do, but even at the time, you know, one of the things I think I've been very lucky um, to have is a real ability to step outside of myself and look back and be like, that was your fault. <laughs> that was, that was nobody else's fault. That was your fault. And that was probably, you know, I think that's, you know, if you have a good quality, that's probably one of my better qualities. Um, <clears throat> but there was always a mantra I had, like, you know, if I had a five foot putt and I was getting nervous about it, I'd be like, dude, in 10 years, nobody's going to give a shit about this. And, and you're not going to remember if you made this five foot putt or not. Now, if it's to win the U S open, right. That's a little different story, but <clears throat> you know, you're putting so much internal pressure on yourself. It's just you who's doing that. Nobody else is doing that. Right. Like maybe you have some financial pressures and maybe your wife or your girlfriend or your friends giving you some pressures, but ultimately it's just you who's creating that. So when I just finally realized like nobody really gives a shit if you make this putt, you know, if you, if you miss a note on stage, nobody's really going to really remember that. Like, that's not how you're going to be defined. 
you know, and I'll, I liken it back to, um, I did the national anthem at an NFL game to, uh, 2017. It was the Jaguars versus the Bengals and, um, good BC, um, uh, segue here. Tom Coughlin was Tom the, Coughlin. <clears throat> yeah, was the, uh, do we have a minute for the story or. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll see where we are in the, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah okay. So either way I'm, I'm doing the national anthem and I walk out, um, you know, I've got the guitar in my back. I'm walking to midfield. There's 70,000 people in there and I see Coughlin who's sort of standing on the sidelines with, you know, the team and getting ready, ready. And he goes, are you singing the anthem? And I'm like, look at the got the guitar, you know, like walking to midfield. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. He goes, all right, don't forget the words. And I'm like, Oh man, like that's the last thing that I ever wanted to like ever hear or think about as you're walking out there. Yeah. And then I'm like, wait a minute, Tom Coughlin is like this incredible motivator. He's like just an amazing guy. I feel like he did that for a reason. Like he needed to refocus me. Right. He, maybe he saw something and I could be reading way into this, but I feel like as a coach, he was just sort of coaching me to the last minute. And what that did was just sort of refocus me. Right. And get out there. And again, I went back to this. I'm like, dude, worst case scenario, you forget one of the words and then you're on one of those blooper reels with Carl Lewis and all these other people, Yeah, you know, and that's not that bad of a worst case scenario, right? Like it's not the end of the world. So that's what I sort of took from that. And that's how I've always sort of lived my life is like, as long as you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, you focused on it, you've worked hard. The result is out of your hands, yeah. right? The re- result is out of your hands. Um, when you get really nervous and perform terribly, it's probably because you weren't prepared enough. And that's for music and golf, right? And business or whatever you want to do. Like the people who've failed and, and felt super nervous and, and done poor things and, you know, haven't been able to perform, I would almost bet 99% of those people didn't prepare like they should have prepared. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So the last one I always give, and I, you kind of already said it a while back, which was, you know, I usually ask what, if, if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? And you talked before about when you were 20 or with that kid that was just coming out of college, was all American that, you know, don't have a backup plan. That sounds like that was your, I mean, you really kind of preemptively answered that. And I think that that's, Important. I don't know if you want to expand on it before I do. I yeah. You I, mean, I think it's super important because I just know, and I know this from watching people succeed in both music and golf and get to these crazy heights, you know, of the PGA tour and top, top 10 in the world. I and mean, one of my good friends right now, Patrick Cantley is top 10 in the world. And from his coach is a very good friend of mine. And he said, you know, he goes, since six years old, this kid was going to be on the PGA Tour. He wanted nothing else. He knew nothing else. He worked his tail off every single day. And he still does. And he still has that work ethic. And there was no way in his mind where there was like, yeah, if this doesn't work out, I'll be a, you know, work, I'll work for an investment bank in LA. No, that's not what he was doing. So at 21 years old, if you have the motivation and, you know, the focus, like, this is what I want to do. You know, a lot of people don't have that at 21. You know, a lot, they don't have any fire or focus into what they want to be. And there's nothing wrong with that either, by the way, right? Like 
you could be 27 before you hit your stride and figure out what you want to do. But if you're in a field like music, golf, acting, entertainment, and you're 21, do not have a backup plan. Like go full throttle, read the books, take the acting classes, go see 50 shows that you don't even like. Watch every Academy Award winning film from 1945 to 2020 and understand why did that win best picture? Understand why did that guy win best actor? Like be so nerdy about this stuff. Be so overprepared that if you ever meet with Sidney Pollack or any one of these guys that you just have this wealth of information and they're like, yeah, this guy's an actor, right? Like this guy's an actor yeah. and you, you may not act your whole life, but you could be an actor your whole life. Absolutely agree. Joe Horowitz. Thank you, man. I, I love that we got to talk. I really admire what you're doing. I love what you did with the garage session, just kind of turning lemons into lemonades. It's, it's really cool. It's really cool to get the backstory on it. I, I appreciate you sitting down. Listen, I mean, I got another 10,000 no's I could tell you about whenever you want to have me on again. And <laughs> <laughs> we all do. I know. Uh, thank you, man. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. I love Joe. I hope you do too. After listening to him, let's go to my top three takeaways. Number one, no matter what your dream is, just start actually doing it, not talking about it, thinking about it, doing it. When I talk to young actors about the early years, I tell them, just get miles on the road. It's very similar to the off-Broadway shows where the Canadian tours and the uh, Corn Ferry tours now, what they call them. Um, you don't do that to make money. You do that to get better, to exist, to keep the dream alive. And to, you know, use it as a stepping stone, right? And and to get your chops, right? I mean, you can't, you don't get the jobs you get in acting, at least most of them, right? Unless you, you know how to act. Number two, in the pursuit of your dreams, don't have a backup plan. This one might feel extreme for some of you, but I saw eye to eye with Joe on this. When I started out as an actor, my friend's dad asked me if I had a backup plan. And I said, if I had a backup plan, that would mean I didn't think I was going to make it on some level. But if I can't convince you of that, think about Denzel Washington and what he said. He said, I don't want something to fall back on. If I'm going to fall, I don't want to fall back. I'd rather fall forward. Here's what Joe had to say. We had things that we could fall back on, which is obviously the definition of a backup plan. But it, it takes that little edge out of your focus, your work ethic, all those things. Obviously, I don't want any of you to end up starving just because some dude on a podcast said don't have a backup plan. But if you plan on not succeeding, you definitely won't. And if you give yourself an out, when the chips are down, you're definitely going to take it. Whatever your dream may be, go at it like there is no other option. Number three, don't let the nose stop you. Just like Joe says, and like we always say here on this show, there are going to be no's on your journey, maybe even 10,000. Just don't get stuck on them. There's no way that that one no is going to do anything but, okay, check that guy off. Next on the list. 
Joe, thank you again. I hope all of you are as inspired by his words and more importantly, his actions and the life that he's built as I am. If you were, we'd love it if you share this podcast so it can make a difference in more people's lives. Leave a review, take a screenshot on your phone, post it to your social media. You can tag at 10,000 knows at Maddie Dell so we can thank you. Connect with us at 10,000 knows.com. Get added to our mailing list. Sign up for the community. Just look around there. There's tons of stuff in there for you. It's simple to do to get onto the mailing list. Uh, We'd love to have you. And uh, that is it. Remember, we have short Monday Morsel episodes every Monday, and we'll see you back here again for another long interview next Friday. 